Uh, but today we are going to be studying the book of Acts. Uh, last week, having looked at the book of Colossians, thank you to uh, Will um, for taking us through that. And uh, the five, six times this year that I'll be out, Will's going to be taking us through the book of Colossians, uh, which is interesting because I think it fits well with our study of the book of Acts. We haven't gotten there yet, uh, but it's going to be one of those places that Paul would have visited and ministered to and uh, and so it kind of fits in uh, a little bit to that. So if you didn't get a chance to consider the, uh, the study last week, you weren't here, or you hadn't had a chance to go back and listen, I'd encourage you to do so. With that being said, we're going to pick up in Acts 18 today. Let's pray. Father, we are, uh, we're grateful for the opportunity to sit under your word. And Lord, uh, as we sang, Lord, to come into your presence, um, to allow you and your word to have its way in our hearts. And Father, we know that ultimately uh, your Holy Spirit is our teacher. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would minister into the very deep places of each one of our hearts, Lord, that you would have your way there, that you'd put your finger on those area of areas of our lives where we are at this moment in time, where we really need to hear from you. We really need the truth of your word to shine bright into even those dark places that we maybe aren't even aware of. Lord, there's a reason why we come and to sit under your word. There's a reason why we read it every day. There's a reason why we think about these things year after year after year. Because these things are truth, your truth. And we live in a world of lies. And so, Lord, minister your truth in such a way that we know that we have been in your holy presence, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are toward the end of chapter 18, and our goal will be to finish chapter 18 today. Um, so begin to look there, and if you uh, would be reminded, uh, Paul is, has wrapped up. That's how we finished two weeks ago. He's wrapped up his second missionary journey, has made his way through portions of Asia and into Europe and back to Asia, and ultimately end up, he will end up back in the region of Syria, just north of Israel, and if you look at verse 18 of the chapter, notice it says this. Now, after this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers, and he set sail for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila. Now, Paul's sending church was in a city called Antioch. There's a number of cities named Antioch, but his sending church was a city of Antioch in the region of Syria. And so he's returning back to his home church. And after three years of being on the road, or the sea, depending on where he was at the particular moment in time, he's now heading back to the place where this second journey began. He's heading back, as I said, to the region of Syria. And notice it says who he's bringing with him. He's bringing this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. We don't hear about a lot of couples in the New Testament. We hear about a lot of them in the Old Testament. You know, Abraham and Sarah and Rachel, or Rebecca, uh, Isaac, whoever he was with, um, that story there, Adam and Eve. We hear of all these couples in the Old Testament. We don't hear of a bunch in the New, uh, Mary and Joseph. We read of them and Elizabeth and his, her husband, Zechariah. I didn't pay much attention to this as I was thinking about it, but there's Priscilla and Aquila, and we do hear about this couple about eight or 10 times in the scriptures, and they're always together. 
They're always ministering. They're always serving one another, certainly, and others that they come into contact with. And we're going to see that in our study today. And so notice this. Paul is bringing about the end of his second missionary journey, but it's the beginning of Priscilla and Aquila's first missionary journey. And that just gives me tingles. I'm sorry, but I'm a little bit excited about that to consider that the work is expanding. It's not just one guy who's great, the Apostle Paul, that is going around and doing everything. But Paul poured into this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. Now Priscilla and Aquila are going to go and they're going to pour their lives into somebody else. And so the end of Paul's second missionary journey is the beginning of Aquila and Priscilla's first. And that's a very important aspect of the Apostle Paul's ministry. And I think it should be a very important aspect of every one of our ministries, however grand or however limited it might be, it should be an aspect of ours as well. And what that is is this, is that the Apostle Paul doesn't hold on so tightly to the reins of ministry, I'm the one that will do it, nobody else. He's not threatened by other people. He gives other people opportunities. He pours into their lives. He prepares them so that they can go out and do it too. And now when Paul's back in Syria doing, I'm sure, ministry, somewhere else Priscilla and Aquila are doing ministry. And somewhere else Silas is doing ministry. And somewhere else Timothy is doing ministry. And Luke is doing ministry. All these people that Paul poured into. That was the philosophy of his ministry. I believe it needs to be the philosophy of our ministry as well. Paul is all about raising up others that they might use their gifts to advance the kingdom of God. And I believe he does it in a very strategic way. He's, it's just not just happening. He's thinking about it. He's praying about it. He's looking, Lord, who would you have me to pour into here? There's lots of people. Who would you have me to pour into? Paul would talk to anybody that wanted to talk to about these things. We'll call them the average man on the street. And so whatever city or country or place that he was in, Paul would talk to those people, explain to those people. But at the same time, there's another ministry that is going on. And that's Paul's discipleship ministry as he's pouring into people's lives. And as we see here, we have the example of Priscilla and Aquila. And in some of the earlier uh, cities that he visited, we saw that he was pouring into Silas. We saw that he was pouring into Timothy. He was sort of a co-laborer with Barnabas. We see that he's pouring into the life of Luke. And on and on and on, it goes from there. Equipping those individuals to effectively use their gifts for the advancement of the kingdom. So Paul, if we're looking at, all right, what was Paul's philosophy of ministry? If we're looking at it, Paul's philosophy of ministry was about reproducing himself. He's all about reproducing himself so that even more could be reached with the gospels, with the gospel. There was a very helpful booklet that was out. I imagine a lot of us here have heard of it or read it. It was called Born to Reproduce. It's real small. It's probably 15 pages, 20 pages in this tiny little booklet, Born to Reproduce. It was written by a fellow named Dawson Trotman. It was actually a sermon that he gave, I think it was at Moody Bible Institute, to a bunch of uh, young people that were preparing and learning to go into ministry. And he basically wanted to influence what kind of ministry are you going to have? And what he was arguing for is you need a reproduction ministry. You need to pour into people's lives so that later on they can go and pour into other people's lives. You can get the booklet online. There's a PDF version of it if you don't feel like paying for it or whatever it might be. Maybe we'll pick up some copies as well. But in it, and I think I'm going to read a little portion of it, Trotman lays out 
I think, like a shocking example of the power of reproduction in the life of a Christian. And, and here's roughly how he goes. I'm skimming a little bit. He says this, you begin with one disciple. And that one disciple, at the end of six months, has another man that he begins to pour into. And after six month, months, each one of those men starts pouring into another for six months. And at the end of the year, you now have four of them. In the next six months, the four of them each begin to pour into four others, one each. And that makes eight at the end of a year and a half. And they go, all go out after another six months. And at the end of two years, there are now 16 men or women. At the end of three years, that 16 is doubled twice for a total of 64. And you keep it going like that. And at the end of five years, there are 1,024 disciples of Christ that came from that original fellow. Well, Trotman goes on that way for a number of pages. And over a period of 15 years, he concludes his exercise by saying, at the end of 15 and a half years, there would be approximately 2,147,000,000 disciples doing ministry and busy about reaching others with the life-changing power of the gospel of Christ. And it's all about reproducing. No one individual, none of us, however talented we may be, can reach two billion people by ourselves. But as we pour into the lives of other people, and then they go and pour into the lives of other people, and then they go and pour into the lives of other people. And so I want to encourage you, be like the Apostle Paul. Be strategic. Be thinking about the lives that you're pouring into. Look for someone that's a little bit younger in the faith, that you can encourage, that you can support, that you can love, that you can mentor, that you can teach, that you can model, that you can disciple. That's what Paul was doing. Look for a person in your life that you can do that with. And if you're a brand new Christian, and we're delighted to have you here, uh, and those that are coming to the faith of late, I want to encourage you, find someone in your life that can mentor you. The, a person that you look up to, a person that you admire, and you say, man, that person's faith, I want to be like that someday. And just say to them, can I take you out to coffee so I can learn everything you have to teach? And I'm sure most people would be delighted to have that opportunity. The power of reproduction, that's what Paul was all about. That's what his ministry is about. And now we see that we're going to see as we get a little further along today, Priscilla and Aquila on their first missionary journey opportunity. But before we do, look at the rest of verse 18. It says, now at Sancria, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow, second half of verse 18. So he had returned, uh, set sail for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila, and at Sancria he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Now Sancria was in the city, or in the, uh, yeah, in the city of Corinth. It was a port city. It was on the eastern side of the city, so it makes sense he's going to go down there. He's about to set sail, so he's going to go to the, the nearest port city, this little city here of Sancria. What's a little surprising, so that makes sense, what's a little surprising to me is where it says there that he had cut his hair because he was under a vow. We don't read a lot about vows like that in the New Testament. This is almost certainly what Paul is doing is he's taking what is called the vow of a Nazarite. And there's a lot of words in our Bibles that sound like Nazarite. We have Nazarene, that's a person from Nazareth. Uh, we have uh, a word, well, we have the city of Nazareth as well. And here we have the vow of a Nazarite. It has nothing to do 
with the city of Nazareth or a person from there, a Nazarene. A Nazarite, it comes from the word Nazir, which simply means consecrated one. And so a vow of a Nazarite is a vow of someone who has consecrated themselves to something. We're not told exactly what Paul consecrated himself to as he was about to leave Corinth. Some people have speculated. Corinth, remember what Corinth was associated with? It was synonymous with debauchery, sexual sin, all those kinds of things. Some have speculated that Paul's coming out of there and is like, I need a bath or whatever, and he just wants to cleanse himself from it, and so he takes this vow of consecration uh, just as he's about to leave there. Now, the vow of the Nazarite, you can read about it. It's found in our Bibles. It's Numbers chapter 6, and there are three requirements that are connected with it while you're taking that particular vow. One of those requirements is that you would shave your head at the start of the vow, make your way eventually to Jerusalem where you're going to bring an offering, and then you would shave your head again at the end of the vow. And so Paul here is starting the vow, just as any of us would that would take this, by shaving his head. What we see as he's about to depart from Corinth is he's celebrating a Jewish ritual. Now, what's surprising to me about that Paul was Jewish, We know that. That's not surprising. Paul was Jewish. What's surprising me about it is two weeks ago when we were together in the story that comes right before it, Paul had just shaken the dust off of his feet with the Jewish people. You remember? And he said, look, I'm trying here. You guys aren't receiving. And so I'm going to wash the blood. You know, I'm I'm free from the the blood is on your own head is what he says to them at that particular time. You can see that in 18.6. And so when the Jews opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, well, your blood be on your own heads, I'm innocent. And from now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. So that that is 18.6. And if we only had that verse in our Bibles, we would think Paul's done with Judaism. Never going to talk to a Jew again. And if, if he's done with Judaism, then he himself is also done with Judaism. And yet here we see that he's taking a Jewish vow. And so it's important for us to take notice that he's more than willing to take part in this Jewish ritual. He hasn't abandoned the faith of Judaism or the practices of Judaism. Remember, the context of that statement that he made back then was, look, if you guys don't want to hear me, I'm going to go to people that will. And so he stopped going to that particular synagogue, talking to those people, and he went and he found Gentiles remember, in the neighboring house, and he began to teach, and he began to speak with them. So Paul has not abandoned Judaism. And those rituals that he believes he can continue to practice, he would. Would he require a Gentile to go get circumcised? No. There were aspects of Judaism that uh, he would leave behind. But here, he's more than willing to take this vow of consecration. And so continuing on, look at verse 19. Just take a quick sip, excuse me. It says, now they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Now, we have a little map here, I think. Yeah, there it is. So that black dot, that's Sencrea. All right, that's uh, the city of Corinth. It's in the region of Acacia um, or so. I forget how to say it exactly, but it's in that region there. Uh, And he set sail over to the red dot. 
the red dot is on, in the region of Asia, and it's the city uh, of Ephesus. Today, it's what we call the city or the nation of Greece. And you might remember that the Apostle Paul very much wanted to go to the region of Asia. He very much wanted to go, almost certainly, to the city of Ephesus. Ephesus at that time had a population of over 300,000 people. It was a major center in the world. That's another one of Paul's philosophy of ministries. I want to go where the people are. I want to reach the people so that they can be sent out and they can go to other places. And so he wanted to go there at the beginning of this second missionary journey. But each time he went in that direction or into this direction, remember it said that the Holy Spirit forbid him from going to that area. And eventually he came to a place where the Holy Spirit didn't forbid him, which was Macedonia in, on the continent of Europe. And so back earlier, it seemed as if the Holy Spirit was saying no to Paul. God, I want to go to Ephesus. No, you can't go. In reality now, what we see is what the Holy Spirit was saying to Paul was not yet. You can go and you will go, but I don't want you to go there yet. I have somewhere else that I need you to go. And so sometimes God says to us, wait. And when we do, or when he does, we can always be confident that the Lord knows what he is doing, as the Lord knew what he was doing with the Apostle Paul. And so, yeah, I'm going to have you go to Ephesus, but not yet. Right now, I need you to wait, and I want you to go somewhere else instead. So one of the important things, I think, for us to remember, a, a point that we can take from this and apply to our lives, uh, when we have closed doors in our lives, God, I want to move in this direction, and the Lord shuts that door. A kid, I want to go to this particular college. And the college says, well, we don't want you to come here. And so they close the door on you from going there. And you're thinking, huh, Lord, I was praying. I thought that's where you wanted me to go. Adults, when you, this particular job, I, I thought there were a lot of jobs I was going to have in my life. And the bosses of those places didn't agree. Uh, and so they didn't let me come and get paid to work there uh, and things like that. And so you think, I know where the Lord would have me to go, but then the doors are shut. And you don't just sit in your house and say, all right, well, then I guess I'll stay here the rest of my life. You, you just get moving somewhere else. And so the Apostle Paul was doing that. And I think a lesson for us is this, is sometimes the closed doors that come in our lives oftentimes do not remain closed forever. And so the answer is it's a not yet. We're told to wait. And sometimes God uses a closed door to send us in a different direction. But then as circumstances change in our Christian life, which one would hope would be growth in our Christian life. But as circumstances change in our Christian life, we find that those once closed doors are now very much opened. It's very much the direction that the Lord would have us to go. Acts 16 and 18, those two accounts, are a good example of that situation in the Apostle Paul's life. And so I imagine that each of us have had similar situations in our lives, or we will, if we haven't yet, we will have similar situations. And many times that desire that God has placed in our hearts, it isn't realized initially, but we keep pushing forward. And so we continue to move forward, continue to put our place ourselves in the center of God's will, and if he's going to open that door a little later, then we move into that as the center of his will as well. As well. Does that make sense? So uh, God may be saying, not yet. And if you find that in your life, I would encourage you to do these things. Keep praying. Keep trusting that God is good. God loves me. God's not angry with me. He's not going to give, you won't give me what I want. 
those kinds of things. That's not what he's doing. So keep trusting him. Keep seeking the Lord. If the burden for Ephesus won't go away, it's very likely it's a not yet. And you just keep serving the Lord in the midst until the Lord opens that door up for you. Amen? Let's go on to verse 19. It continues. And they, it says, And they came to Ephesus, and Paul, he, left them there. But he himself went to the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews. Now the them refers back to the previous verse, the last couple or group of people that we talked to. It refers back to Priscilla and Aquila. And what we're going to see in Acts chapter 19, that Paul's going to come back to Ephesus at another point in time, and he's going to minister there. He's going to do that actually for about two years. At this point in time, however, he does not stay in Ephesus. He's going to leave, and Aquila and Priscilla are going to remain there. Paul's going to leave Ephesus, go to Jerusalem to fulfill his vow, and then go back to Antioch, and eventually make his way back to Ephesus. But what he does do at this time in the city of Ephesus before departing is he goes down to the synagogue for, you know, my, my boat's leaving later in the afternoon. I'll go there in the morning. He, do, he goes down to the synagogue and he ministers. And then he leaves Priscilla and Aquila behind to continue ministry. And so verse 19, it says that he himself went into the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews. If you look at verse 20, it indicates that the Jewish people there were quite receptive to what it is Paul had to say. Notice, he's ministering to the Jews in a synagogue. Again, he hasn't abandoned all Jewish people. He just pulled away from the ones in Corinth that didn't want to hear. And he went to Gentiles in that particular town. But here he is back ministering again to, uh, to Gen uh, Jews in the synagogue. They seem receptive. Look, it says in verse 20, they asked him to stay longer. Come on, stay. You can stay another week, can't you? Come back next Saturday. We'd love to hear from you. But notice it says that Paul declines, I imagine, respectfully. He said, look, I will make every chance, I, every effort I can to get back here, but I, I do need to go. I'm sorry. And if you look at verse 21, that's what he says. I will return to you if God wills. And he sets sail from there. And as I said, in the meantime, he'll leave Priscilla and Aquila that they might minister to these folks in his absence. So Paul still cares for them. And again, he's reproduced himself so that now they can be his co-laborers there and they can do the ministry, even though Paul's not there. An important phrase is found in verse 21. It, Paul says, uh, I'll return, notice, if God wills. And I think that's really important because we like to think, especially as we grow into adulthood, I make my own decisions for my life. We like, and I don't know if we, we say this, but we live almost this way. I'm going to make my own decisions, and then I'll go to God and say, God, bless what I've decided to do. But what you notice here, Paul, he's making decisions. He's planning. He's figuring out what I want to do. I want to take this vow. I want to go to Jerusalem, and I want to get back to Antioch and all of that. I want to come back here to Ephesus. So he's making goals for himself, but all of that is submitted in this little phrase if God, if God wills, because God might determine to do something else that I'm not aware of and I'm not familiar with right now. And so Paul, very careful to hold any plans that he might make lightly, knowing that the Lord might always direct him in a different direction. He says, I'll be back if God wills. I imagine you're familiar with the book of James. I think in the book of James, it speaks to this important mindset 
in a very clear way. This is what it says in the fourth chapter. It says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears a little, for my self-esteem, not very good, but that's okay. I need that. For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, what you ought to say is if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or we will do that. Pretty clear, isn't it? How we are to be living our lives. Now, there are some Christians, maybe you're one of them, <laughs> um, that like to tack the phrase or feel they need to tack the phrase, if the Lord wills, to every single sentence that they say or everything that they uh, say that is in regard to like a plan of some sorts. So they might say this, well, after work, I plan to go to the grocery store, if the Lord wills. And then I plan to cook dinner, if the Lord wills. And then I'll watch some TV, if the Lord wills. And they, they feel like they need to throw that on after every single thing they say. I'm not a guy that needs to do that. Um, and I don't think you necessarily need to do it. Unless God is saying, you better do it, then you better do it. I think the point is not so much to say the phrase as to live the phrase. And that is to live in such a way that we hold on to our plans light, lightly. So I'm going to head off to the grocery store. But if there's a car broken down on the side of the road and the person doesn't look like a killer, then I'll pull over and I'll help them or whatever and be sidetracked from what I had planned. But just because I didn't say if the Lord wills. And so we want to live in such a way that we hold on to our plans lightly. We want to give the Lord freedom and space to modify them according to his will and not our own. And if you're doing that and you're right in line with what it is that we see, then you are right in line with what it is we see Paul is doing here, whether you mouth the phrase or not but living our lives in such a way that we give room for God to accomplish his will in our lives and not be so fixated on what our will for our lives is. The Apostle Paul demonstrates that here. Now we go back to verse 22, and it says, Now when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and he greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. Let's bring the map up again there. You see in that bottom right corner, that little blue dot, that's as close as I can get to where Caesarea is located. So we started at the black dot. That was where, class? That was the city of Corinth, the port city of Sancreia. Then he went across that body of water there to Ephesus in the region of Asia. Fantastic. Mark Fuller, I think I heard your voice. I don't see you. Um, and then he sailed down to Caesarea. Now, Caesarea today is within the confines of the nation of Israel. We go there when we go on our uh, trip to Israel, um, and it's a crazy cool place to go and to visit today as far as the archaeological um, stuff that is located there. So Paul sails all the way back to the region of Israel, back to uh, just north of that is where Syria is located there. That's about 700 miles of sailing. It doesn't look like it from up there, but this is a long trip to get back to that particular region. And it says that the first thing that it tells us is when he landed there, he went up and greeted the church. Now that gives the impression that somewhere in the city of Caesarea, there was a church 
and he stopped by to see the people. The reality is there, there wasn't a church in Caesarea. There may have been, but that's not where Paul went. When it says that he went up to the church, he went up to the church that was in Jerusalem. Remember, that was what he was trying to do, was get to Jerusalem to fulfill his vow. And so he finishes the missionary trip, makes his way to Ephesus, talks with a few folks, and then he goes down essentially to Israel and to Jerusalem where he visits the church that is there in that city and where some of the other key leaders, no doubt, would have still been the place where the Christian church actually started. And then from there, as it goes on in verse 22, it says he went down to Antioch, which was his home church, which officially, I guess, brings an end to the second missionary journey. He's back to the place where it started. Now, notice one thing, and that has to do with the words up and down. We say up when we're referring to going north, correct? I'm going to take a trip up to Canada and get arrested, I guess, because everyone's getting arrested up there, it seems. So I'm going to take a trip up to Canada, and, but then it'll be too cold there, and so I'm going to go down to Florida, right? That's what we say. However, that's not how they talked in the Bible times. You always went up to Jerusalem for a variety of reasons, spiritual headquarters, that kind of thing, but the main one, 7,000 feet above sea level. And so you would always go up to Jerusalem and down to other places here. So Paul, I like this. These are the things that humor me. Paul went south to go up to Jerusalem and north to go down to Antioch. Got it? No, you don't. Um, <laughs> I don't have it. Uh, I get confused. But anyway, that's what he did. Let's go on. Verse 23. Now, after spending some time there, he departed. And he went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all of the disciples. We're not told how long he stayed at his home church. Doesn't feel like it's a very long time. But now Paul's going to begin his third missionary journey. It tells us some of the regions, Galatia and Phrygia, that's that particular region. So the people back in Antioch are probably thinking, you don't like us, do you? <laughs> you never stay here. Uh, whatever, But I think that speaks to the strength of the church. The church was healthy. I think if Paul got there and it was mayhem and all kinds of problems, Paul would say, I mean, i got to stay here for a little while. But the church is doing well. He had left behind people there that could teach the people. They were growing. They were ascending body of believers. And so Paul is back out on the road again. He goes to those regions there, Galatia. He goes to Phrygia. This is the town names you've heard of, I'm sure, Tarsus. Derby, Lystra, Iconium, uh, Pisidian Antioch, the other Antioch that is there, all of those cities that he had been to previously, just like Paul began his second missionary journey, he begins his third one. He goes back to see how the disciples in those communities are, that he might strengthen them again. He might teach them, why don't we, I, what are your questions? What have you been struggling with? How can I help? How can I answer? Paul goes there and he does that as well. Notice this. It says in verse 23, he went to the, that region, strengthening all the disciples. Notice what it doesn't say. He went to that region, strengthening all his disciples. Because they may have been people he led to the Lord, but they weren't his. They're the Lord's. And Paul recognized that. Paul understood that. Paul would write in another place, some plant, some water, but it's the Lord that brings the increase. It's the Lord that makes disciples. They're his disciples, they're not mine. Meanwhile, Paul's in those regions, in that, those two regions there. Notice what the author of the book. Who's the author of the book of Acts? 
It's Luke. All right, so notice what Luke does here. This is verse 24. Luke's back in the city of Ephesus, or that's what he's writing about. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Acacia, the brothers encouraged him, and they wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So for the first time, we're introduced to a guy who appears a number of times in the scripture, a fellow by the name of Apollos. You see there in verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos. We learn a lot about this guy in just these couple of verses. We know his name. It's Apollos. We, know, we are told that he is a Jew. We're told that he was a native of Alexandria and that he had come to Ephesus. Now, Alexandria was located in, in what is today Egypt, northern Africa. It was at the time the second largest city in the Roman Empire. It had a reputation very similar to Athens as being an intellectual city. I think you could kind of draw a contrast between them. Athens was an intellectual city at this time, and still hanging on, so to speak. Alexandria was presently an intellectual city. And, And so let me restate that again. 200 years earlier, Athens was the intellectual city of the world. At this time, Alexandria was pretty much the intellectual city of the world, or at least of that region. They've discovered, archaeologists have discovered uh, the Library of Alexandria, where there were hundreds and thousands of literary volumes there at the Library of Alexandria. In addition, Alexandria had a very large Jewish population, one of the largest Jewish populations outside of Israel. Forty percent of the people of the city of Alexandria were, uh, were Jews, one of them being Apollos. And so as the verse says here, we have a Jewish guy named Apollos from Alexandria who's gone on kind of a mission trip to the city of of Ephesus. Notice also in verse 24, it tells us that he was an eloquent man. Some versions, NIV, I think it refers to him as a learned man. The point is that he spoke very well, but he wasn't just sort of some like flowery orator that everyone's like impressed. You're like, well, what did he say? I don't know, but it was great. That's not what he was. He could speak very well, but he could teach. He was a teacher. He was eloquent. He was learned. And people walked away having gained something from the show uh, that was up front. And that's what he did. He educated those that he came into contact with. It tells us also in verse 24 that he was competent in the scriptures. Now, remember, this is written before any of the books probably of the Bible have been written, or at least any of the books of the New Testament, I should say, have been written or at least disseminated. And so when it says that he's competent in the scriptures, it's referring back to the Old Testament scriptures. And lastly, it says there in verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Now here, 
is where we need to kind of dig in a little bit. More than just simply observe. Okay, he was a Jew, his name was Apollos. More than simply observe, we need to dig a little bit here. It, Luke tells us that he was instructed in the way of the Lord. And then look, a moment later, seconds later, at the end of verse 25, it says, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, but all he knew was the baptism of John, though he knew only the baptism of John. Okay, so that's important for us. Look down to verse 26 for a moment, where we're told that after hearing uh, Apollos speak, that Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And so what we're learning here, what we see here, is Apollos had all sorts of strengths. He was a smart guy. He was a good speaker. He was well-educated. He had the ability to communicate that education in a way that others could understand it. But at the same time, he had one limitation. Apollos did not yet fully understand who Jesus was and what Jesus had done. So prior to connecting with Priscilla and Aquila, his knowledge of Jesus was limited to that which John the Baptist had spoken about Jesus and had shared about Jesus. So it's possible Apollos didn't even know Jesus' name at this point in time, that that's something he's going to discover later. Because John the Baptist didn't go around initially telling everyone that it was going to be Jesus. He said, there's one coming after me. And I wouldn't have known him unless the Holy Spirit fell upon him. So this is what we know Apollos knew from the message of John, from Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so what Apollos knew was that there was one that was coming. One that was coming after John, whose sandal, John declared he wasn't even worthy to unlatch. So one that was greater than John. John chapter 1, the book, the Gospel of John, it says, John answered them, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And so our friend Apollos here, uh, he just had not yet come to learn who that one was. And so he went to Ephesus preaching a message that John would have preached, a message of repentance, a message of preparing, a message of you need to get right with God because the Messiah is coming. And that's a powerful message, isn't it? Yeah. Now Priscilla and Aquila are sitting in the audience and they're thinking like, do you think he's going to like say it at the end or something? Like he's trying to surprise them? And Apollos wraps it up and he never mentioned Jesus and he never mentioned that the Messiah had come and that he had done the things that he had done that we read about in our gospels and that he went to a cross and everybody thought it was over and then he came and he rose again from the dead and he came and he ministered to his disciples and he gives eternal life he didn't know all of that stuff he only knew the message that John himself had preached and so our friends Priscilla and Aquila take him aside to explain uh, more uh, thoroughly with him. It says in verse 25 that he was fervent in spirit. That's a term which means uh, boiling hot. He was fired up. And he had a message to share. And he, he had the ability to share a message in such a way that his audience knew, man, this guy really believes this. 
It's boiling out over him. You know, sometimes we can share a message and we're like, do you even believe that? You don't seem very excited about it or interested in it or have much conviction. Oh, I don't know. It's kind of important. You should think. Like, do you have any conviction? This guy had conviction. He was boiling over. He was fervent in spirit. And yet, he did not yet have all of the information. He was fervent in spirit. And regarding the things that he did know, it says in the verse there that he, he knew those accurately. He was on the mark with the things he did know. And so who is he? He's an ardent Jew looking for the coming of the Messiah, completely unaware that the Messiah had actually already come. And we're talking about 20 years or so, maybe 25 years uh, after Jesus' death and resurrection. So verse 26 again, it says, And so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Boldly, Apollos preached that Messiah was coming and the people needed to prepare themselves. Notice this, though. Politely, Priscilla and Aquila, they sat there and they listened. Politely, they gave Apollos room to speak the entirety of his message. They didn't stand up in the middle when it became clear that Apollos couldn't kind of finish the story. They didn't stand up in the middle and start yelling at Apollos. They didn't call him names. You're a heretic. They didn't storm out of the synagogue in protest of the false message that he was sharing. They didn't start live tweeting. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Or anything like that. They sat quietly and they respectfully listened to him. And then when he was finished and everybody patted him on the back and said, that's a good message and I appreciate what you had to share, they sat and they waited their turn and then it says they took him aside. I suspect they invited him for a meal, because that's what you do. And they said, why don't you come back to our place? We're going to have some lunch. And they took him aside. And then it says there in verse 29, they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And I suspect they began with John chapter 1, that verse I read a little bit earlier. And they told about that time that, uh, that John was out there baptizing. He was uh, on a break, I guess you might think, and he had a couple of his disciples with them, and he saw Jesus, and he said, you see that man over there? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29 says that uh, in, exactly, as I quoted it there. And from there, from that example, when John pointed to Jesus and said, that's the man I was talking about, that's the one that would come after me, whose sandal I'm not even unable to un unloosen. That's the one that is greater than I am. I baptized you with water. He's the one that's going to baptize you with fire. Follow him. Remember, he passed his disciples off to Jesus. They start walking behind Jesus. Jesus turns around, what do you want? And they're like, uh, where are you staying? He says, come and see. And they did. And they were convinced. And they ran and got their friends who came back and followed Jesus. And they got some more friends who followed Jesus and so on and so forth. And they began to explain the Gospels to Apollos. Such a cool story. What, now, here's the cool thing. Priscilla and Aquila, what was their job? Tent makers. Remember, they were tent makers? That's a blue-collar job. You're not going to be the highest educated guy, you know, going off to the greatest schools and all that to become a tent maker. When you're a young kid, you're probably going to sit with your, your dad, your mom, whatever, and they're going to explain, they're going to teach you, and that's what you're going to do. Apollos... 
educated in probably the best schools possible. And here are these blue-collar workers that come and take this highly educated man and they explain the scriptures to him. And it's pretty cool to see them doing it. It's really cool to see Apollos, who is humble enough to say, well, explain it to me. I want to receive. I want to learn. I want to know the Lord. And I feel like I'm missing something. And I'm not greater than you. And yeah, I was the guy that was up front. And I'm the guy everybody came and patted on the back. But I needed to learn. They didn't yell at him. They didn't embarrass him. They didn't back him into some corner so he would come out swinging. In grace and humility, Priscilla and Aquila, they approach Apollos. And they do so with the intent of winning Apollos to their argument. Sometimes we approach people that we we don't see eye to eye with with the intent of winning the argument, putting them in their place, embarrassing them, letting them know that I'm the one who's right and you're the one that is wrong. Well, what is the good of that? What are we getting out of that? You feel better about yourself? You're a big man? Lady? I'm sorry. I'm getting a little worked up. (laughs) What's the good of that? I don't understand the good of that. Now you have an enemy, someone who doesn't like you and thinks you're a jerk. They wanted to win Apollos to their argument, that he would understand their argument, that he would be convinced and come over to their line of thinking. That's what they were hoping for. And so in a very humble way, they did so. They respond to Apollos's errors, and I put it in quotes because I'm not even sure it's an error. He just didn't know. How could he know? Nobody told him. But they respond to his errors with such an incredible measure of grace and ministers to them. Many times people just don't know yet. We don't have to start beating them with sticks. They just don't know. We want to minister in a way that is gentle and is kind and is gracious and ministers truth into their lives in a way that they're willing to receive from us what it is we're bringing. Reminding ourselves that there was a time when you didn't have all the answers, correct? And may I remind you... You still don't have all the answers. There's somebody else further along from you that can turn around and help you. And how grateful I am for those that graciously put up with me in my ignorance. How gracious, glad I am for those that continue to graciously put up with me in my continued ignorance. And again, don't miss Apollos' response. He responds with humility by receiving from them. And so may each of us have that teachable spirit of a guy like Apollos that can receive from others. Last thing here I'll draw your attention to. Look at verse 27, about halfway through the verse. It says, now when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. All right, so I guess i got to read the whole verse. He crossed over to Acacia where the brothers encouraged him and so on. And then when he arrived, he greatly helped uh, those that he came into contact with. Because Priscilla and Aquila, in a very loving and gracious and kind way, ministered truth to Apollos, Apollos is now able to go somewhere else and minister a more complete true message than he would have been able to before. Does that make sense? Are you with me here? And it says there that he greatly helped those who through grace believe. Notice this last point. Did I just say that? A moment ago? She's like, yes, she did. (laughs) One more. (laughs) Who's not involved in this story at all? The Apostle Paul. And yet, look at the ministry that's happening. 
really good, solid, good, great ministry is occurring, and the Apostle Paul is not there at all. One more example of how he reproduced himself effectively. And we could change the world as we reproduce ourselves one person at a time. What's the number? Two billion, 147 million or something in 15 years. I'm 50. I think Social Security kicks in at 65. Is that what I'm told, old people? Um, <laughs> just kidding. 15 years. <laughs> there may not be Social Security. Let's do that together. Amen?